the change is actually going to be how the consumers actually get information from you. And most of the folks are basically saying, I'm going to do more of what I've done because generative AI makes me more efficient when actually they need to start doing things differently. Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f-ing grow. All right, welcome to Room for Growth. Thanks for listening today. Today, we're zooming in on the AI space. And when I say zooming in, I'm not just using that in like the cliche way. Like we're about to go deep on the space and we've got an expert. Billy, I don't know if you're like me. I've said this already, so I'm like a broken record. Just trying to keep up with this space is like, it's it's exciting and terrifying all at the same time. You know, there's this new technology that's going to be revolutionary but constantly feeling behind is kind of a, a fun push and pull. And during our conversation with our guest, I definitely had many moments of panic where I thought, oh no, this guy is like 40 times smarter than I am in this space. So I'm excited to share him with our listeners, but can you relate to that at all? I mean, a bit. I am really <laughs> loving the advent of AI and all of the conversation it's creating. It's This is why it's fun to work in tech is you get to be on the right. cutting edge of figuring out the what it even is that you're solving for. So I've been enjoying the conversations we're having with our clients and business leaders, how they are thinking about AI, whether they're bought into it or they're just a little bit pessimistic right now, like just how they're placing bets on fortunes and futures is fascinating. But then as a person who has spent most of my career thinking about very basic questions, how do you create robust and connected profiles of data about your customers so that you can understand the interactions you've had with them and what they care about? So you can speak to them in ways that are meaningful. What I loved about Brett Kinsella, who's about to come on and holy smokes, he is, you are not lying, Billy, like he is so smart. And this has been his space for 10 years plus, And he's just sort of foremost expert in this space. He said some things that were very practical about what product right. owners and marketers need to be thinking about that blew my mind in a way that were almost painful because he said them like they were the easiest things on the planet to think about. And that was really fun. Yeah. This was one where I was actually taking notes uh, during, during the conversation and had to remind myself that we're actually recording a podcast and that this wasn't like a learning session for me. Um, So, uh, so that was, that was valuable. Let me real quick, tell you a little bit about our guests and we'll get right into the interview. So Brett Kinsella, he's a a renowned leader in the AI and voice technology space. He's the founder, CEO, and research director of voicebot.ai. You'll hear him talk a little bit about that. And the CEO and editor of Synthedia. So he's uh, recognized as an analyst, an expert. We've known Brett over the years and, and have certainly leveraged his insights and, and his site and the, and the research that they're, they're creating to inform some of the, the recommendations that we deliver to our clients. So it's certainly an honor to, uh, to, ha- to have him on our podcast and share his thoughts and insights with you. So we'll let you learn more about Brett. You can find him certainly on LinkedIn and, and on some of the sites that he's mentioned. But with that, let's get to the interview with Brett Kinsella. Brett, welcome to Room for Growth. We are so excited you are here. You have quickly risen as one of the most foremost voices in AI and some of the advancements in AI that are now just dominating 
every conversation, whether it's within technology, marketing, IT, it's everywhere. And so are you. So we're super excited to have you here today. Um, I'd love to give you a chance to introduce yourself. What has your background been? What has your journey been to get where you are today? And how did you become so involved and so ready to be at the forefront of this changing landscape in AI? Well, Billy, thanks so much for inviting me. And also, Billy, uh, glad to see you both here today. You said it was a quick rise. It doesn't really feel like that. I've been in the AI space pretty much exclusively for over a decade. And I've been working in new technologies and each of these new technology transformations since the 90s. And so it really seems like accumulation of that. Now, when we look at uh, AI in general, I've started working with building voice assistants like Beyond Teams launched some things in the marketing and advertising space, uh, post Siri, pre Alexa. So you can think about where that was mm-hmm. and sort of the history here. And in 2016, I actually created voicebot.ai. In part, it's because it's the publication I wanted when I was doing research on the space, but I actually wrote an article for Advertising Week and I just got a lot of people asking me, well, where'd you get that information? It was very hard to find things back in 2016. There was just like a little bit of like coverage of devices and things like that. But I actually knew the technology. I knew the industry already. And people asked me, I said, oh, I'll just put up a blog. And I thought we would just like post once or twice a week type of thing. And then it turned out to be within a few weeks, a daily activity and then multiple times daily. And we added research and all these other things because there was a lot of demand for some sort of, you know, what we would say is both some insight and news that had some commentary and context around it from the technology and business side, but also just a place to bring it all together. And so that's what we've done over the years. And I think we've become known as the central source for this and a real focus on conversational AI, synthetic media and generative AI. And in fact, generative AI, we didn't used to call it that, but we've been covering that since 2018. Uh, when the BERT model came out, uh, and then like heavily, actually 2017, if you think about synthetic voices, that we started covering them. And uh, Eric and I, our head writer, sat down last summer. And so this is over a year ago. We said, geez, you know, we feel like we've got 150 articles that talk about generative AI, but it, it's not getting enough attention. And so we put this thing together. We actually launched a daily newsletter called Synthedia around synthetic media and generative AI as well. And we've got, I think, 800 articles on the space. We've got some research that we've done in the space as well since then. So, you know, we're we're playing the same role as we've done right along. We're trying to help educate the market, keep them informed and help. Ultimately, we hope people make better decisions as a a result of it. So, Brett, every day we're talking to marketers and and really that's the kind of the core of this podcast is really how we uh, can help digital marketers, growth marketers in the space continue to leverage the the tools and the strategies uh, to, to deliver on um, the expectations that that they're they're focused on delivering for their company. And AI is, is quickly becoming a core part of that. And Billy and I on this podcast have thrown back and forth of, okay, is are we are in digital marketing, are we actually ready for you know the the AI front or there are so many brands that still are not delivering anything remotely close to a personalized experience and are not delivering on kind of the core fundamental tactics that that are are before them. So I don't know. I'm just going to like lob that that topic to you and maybe we can go back and forth a, a, a little bit. Are there areas where you think with with AI specifically and in, 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 in the digital marketing space where we're maybe underestimating the power of what it can unlock for a digital marketer at a, at a Fortune 1000 brand? Or maybe other areas where we're completely, um, you know, just 
overestimating what it what it can do altogether. And that's, that's a great great way to think about it. Uh, overall, we're underestimating the impact this is going to have. There's just no question in my mind that the transformation is bigger than most people recognize. We might be overestimating in the near term how much impact it's going to be, and I think we are overestimating in the near term, particularly how much the creation element is going to be impacted. It is already making a big impact, but it's not, everything's not changing. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of it, there's workflows, there's collaboration, there's all these other things that have to happen. The generative AI somewhat helps, but doesn't help that much. It's this this core creation element. One of the things that I, I think about a lot Having been a marketer, I've been a CMO of a number of startups. I come from the software and technology industry. I've also been in consulting uh, before really focusing much more on publishing and research. And one of the things I think about is, okay, this creation element is great. But if we think about what's actually happening and about to happen in discovery, in consumption, in customer expectations, we are way underestimating it. Now, you said a lot of things in your comment. You said things about this idea about customization. and We get into this personalization. I was around in the 1990s when the internet was coming. That was an epochal change. We had atoms, we moved to bits. Everything was analog. We needed to create a whole digital set of assets, ecosystems, methodologies for interacting. It's really significant. And one of the things people said is, we're going to have one-to-one marketing, mass customization, <laughs> experience economy, all these things. And what did we get? We got standardization across the board because that's what we could deliver. And part of that is the creation element. It's not just like understanding intent. I mean, if you look at what Facebook did in particular around focusing not just around topics like Google did, but about your persona and your interests and and preferences, that's already happened. But it didn't necessarily deliver you that really mass customization. So I think that is one thing that's really going to, to change. But more so and more immediately, Discovery, consumption, and expectations are changing. And that's the thing where I think most marketers actually are misunderstanding it. They should adopt fully appropriately as well the creation element where it helps them. And that it's, there's a lot of benefit. There's a lot of productivity benefits. There's consistency benefits, other things there. But they're misunderstanding and misunderestimating how search is changing particularly what's going on from a consumption standpoint. And so we can get into this more. I don't want to like just like dominate this, but I'd say that if you look at what people are using ChatGPT for, Bing Chat, Google SGE, Perplexity AI, all these other types of things, it's giving them answers. And everyone's thinking it's about, I'm going to take generative AI to push more content on people. So it's a supply side impact. No, it's a demand side impact. The change is actually going to be how the consumers actually get information from you. And most of the folks are basically saying, I'm going to do more of what I've done because generative AI makes me more efficient when actually they need to start doing things differently. Say more about some of that. If you were leading a Fortune 5, a Fortune 1000 brand today, and you were trying to think about preparedness for the future of AI in what I think of as two camps. What's some of the homework that you probably already should have done, but definitely need to do now to make sure that your systems, your data, your operations are in order to fully leverage AI, as well as where to start bringing AI into your day-to-day and benefiting from it. There are so many different spheres to take that framework to. There's productivity, there's quality of communications, there's individual types of channels 
there's increasing relevance. Where would you start? What is what is the low hanging fruit? What's the table stakes? It's going to sound trite, but you start with the customer. And, and I think like as marketers, we've done a big disservice to customers. And a lot of this actually was driven by mobile and small screens. And we created hamburger menus and we created really tight, short messaging just to try to get a like a quick message. We want to be known for this brand and this type of thing. I understand. I've done a lot. Of, I'm widely published on brand strategy. I've, I've been doing this since 2000, 2001 from brand strategy standpoint. I understand all that stuff, but it's not aligned with what people are looking for right now. I think we underestimate how sophisticated the consumers of business information are, whether they're consumers or they're other businesses. And we treat them not just like one of the herd, but we we almost infantilize them as opposed to really just having a conversation. This era of authenticity that we're sort of emerging from, because I think that's, that was a thing for a while. Mm-hmm. We never really fully embrace that as marketers. And so just think about this. I've done this for years. I've talked to startup founders and they want to have something really elegant with a hamburger menu and just a, a hero image. And I said, you know what? This is a mistake. Because what you're doing is you're forcing that customer to click multiple times to see if what they're interested in is even relevant to what you offer. And it doesn't look as elegant. The design is not as pretty. But if you just put more things on the screen to allow them to very quickly get to their answer or to see what they want, it might not be the journey you want, but it's the journey they need. And, 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 mm-hmm. and that's where you build trust. That's where you build engagement, servicing them where they are. When we're moving into generative AI, it becomes even more important because the expectations are changing. They, they know why, if they might wind up your website first, if they can't figure out in three, four, five seconds, if you can answer their question, they're just going to skip over to Bing Chat, Google, uh, Perplexity. Mm-hmm. They're going to ask the question there. And guess what? Your website might not show up. You just lost them. And so... This idea of getting someone to an interior page very quickly is very important. Now, how do you do that? You can do that by giving them a little button that says the topic that they might be interested in. Another way you can do that is actually some sort of generative AI chat interface, which is not your chat bot in the lower right-hand corner of your website because that's terrible. It's only designed to typically to capture an email address or to put you into some queue as opposed to really helping them along their journey. And I think about a, a company that's been a pioneer in this, Versa is an agency out of Australia. Kath Blackham, I've known her for years in the space. They've done a lot of conversational AI work, as you guys have. When you go to their website, you can't find out anything unless you will engage with the chatbot. It is a chat. It's a conversation first interaction. Now, once you click on it, it might give you some suggestions and it gives you some chips or buttons that you can say different topics and like where to go. Okay, so what does that do? Like originally when I talked to Kath about it, she said, well, it hasn't really changed conversion that much in terms of like any individual visit, but it did give them a lot of data. Hmm. And so they knew actually what people wanted. And if they left, it's because they couldn't find something and they're like, oh, should we have that? Or if we don't have that, that might be okay. Uh, but in the past, if, if they had abandons, they didn't know what they were missing. Now they know what people actually want. And you can get people faster to the thing that they really want, solve a problem, meet them where they are first, and that'll give you the opportunity to tell them your broader story about the funnel that you want to get them in. So I want to come right back to what you're saying, Brett. But you said some. you said two things that really stood out to me. One was a hypothesis that I want to challenge you on just a little bit. 
And the other is an assertion that I agree with wholeheartedly that I want to dig in at another layer. Um, So first, I want to call you on your hypothesis and say, I think you are wrong here, but I'd love to hear why you believe this to be true. You said you think the era of authenticity is coming to an end, that we were sort of in a period of time where authenticity was this buzzword for brands and a way to get ahead. I think that's here to stay. And in fact, with the advent of AI, I think it will be more prominent. Talk to me more about why you think it will end, and then I'll tell you where I totally agree with you. So I think the era of authenticity from a consumer standpoint, a customer standpoint, is still here, and it's actually more important than ever. I believe that most of the marketers have gotten bored with it. And I'm seeing more highly produced things. So we got got to this era where we, we went to this more authentic approach, and we reduced the production value, and that wound up being important. It was a nice signal. But it was this idea that we're treating people not as an audience. We're treating them as peers. And we just have to have something to offer them. And we're going to have an exchange around that. Or we're going to talk to them as if they're our next door neighbor or our colleague or something like that. And there was a lot of experimentation with that. We did a lot of things on Facebook, both produced and, you know, and I'd say more raw. Instagram, we saw that as well. What I'm observing is that we're moving back to that more polished production that's really just blasting out common stuff to everybody. And to a certain extent, I think a lot of these organizations are metric driven. Maybe they think that that's working better. I don't think that works better over the long term. I'm not sure that it it might work over the short term, and it depends on your category. But that's where I really think I think that this era of authenticity Marketers get bored, they just sort of change, and I think very often they get out of step with what consumers want. And consumers are used to a very different style of interaction. And and like I think we can say they've been empowered, but more they know what they want and they don't want someone selling to them. And I think that's that's across generations, particularly you know, true of the you know sub forty-five crowd. Totally. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the era of authenticity is really about how quickly transparent can you be about what your product does and doesn't do. And that tends to be what what resonates with folks. But then the other thing that you said that I want to dig into because it resonated so much is that so many brands right now are thinking, how do we just do what we've done in the past, but do it bigger? So they're like, we used to send an email once a week, let's send it every day. And that is a really dangerous mindset. I like that you replaced what they are doing with what they should be doing around this notion of think about how search is going to change. Um, I want to make this more tangible. So an example of this to me, I think that's really common is when people want to cancel their subscription or they want to return a product. Those are traditionally two of the hardest things to do on a website or in an app. Um, So for the most part, you might go search around for a while, try to figure out how to cancel, can't do it. You go to another screen, you say, how do I cancel my Amazon subscription? You Google that, or you bing it, or now you can put it in ChatGPT. You get a link back, you maybe get subscriptions, and then you run through it. I think the best companies are going to figure out how to make difficult things easier through their own site, but use AI. So Amazon, for instance, if you need to return a product now, it's still very hard to find and figure out how to do that. If I, you want to tell Amazon, hey, my package wasn't delivered, but I'd like it to be re-delivered to me, still challenging to find. But once you do it, they are using chatbots really effectively to make that experience super elegant. I'm curious if you can just go a step deeper on like what it shouldn't be, what it should be. Where are we going? Who's doing this well? What are some of the really tangible experiences that you can think of? 
that are leveraging this in ways that will drive business. Some of the things we're looking at, and I think we're largely focused on the large language model based applications for generative AI, like in this conversation right now, uh, some of these were actually first exposed and started to be tackled through conversational AI, which is if people aren't founding it, we think of NLU based systems, natural language understanding. And, and the way to think about the difference between these two is the NLU based systems have uh, high variability inbounds. Uh, so you can say anything and then it has to figure out what you want, but there's not very, there's not significant variability in the outbound. It's, it's all from a database where we know what the responses could be. Whereas when you move into the generative space, you have the high variability inbound, but you also have high variability outbound. And so that's significantly different. It allows you to handle more things. Um, it allows you actually, frankly, to do better intent matching, even though it doesn't understand intents. There's all these other types of things that are going on. So like, that's the first thing like, we, start to, we start to think about in this space. But if we just think of a conversational AI, Richard Weeks was on my podcast a couple of years ago. He's a senior executive at US Bank, oversees their mobile app product. And what we talked about when he implemented a conversational assistant is he has 300 features, over 300 features in his mobile app. Now, how do you expose 300 features to a user on a mobile app? You don't, right? So like, how do you get to all of them? It's like it's too many menus, no one gets to them. And we saw this with Bank of America, Erica. We saw this also with US Bank and some others. What was the number one thing that people got frustrated about, but then loved when they int introduced conversational assistant? They could find the ABA routing code or the Swift code, right? <laughs> and guess what happened? Like I did some research for RBC several years ago on this. When I was looking at this, people were raving about Erica specifically for that. And people, and I, like I pulled reviews, it said, I used to have to, call twice a year for this because it's just something I don't keep around. And I would spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes in a queue waiting to get this thing. And I just used Erica and I got it in 30 seconds, right? So Erica is the, the conversational assistant. So this idea of being able to get to what you want, particularly when you've got all these things you could offer, all these yeah. things you could say, all these features is one thing. The next thing is that I always tell people is think about the long tail. If you're in a mobile app and you want to get your bank balance, it's instantaneous. It might be on the splash screen or it's one touch because everyone realizes that you need that a lot. Yeah. So do you need conversational interactions or a large language model to help you with that? Probably not. But the long tail things, the things that happen once a year, once every two years, once a month even, like you don't develop a habit or knowledge around or it's between cycles when they change the UI, all those types of things. Those actually provide a lot of value. When we bring in the large language models, we can actually do more and we tend to have higher accuracy. So those are some of the things that, I don't know if I answered all your questions because you said a few different things, but I think I answered part of your questions. You can tell me what I forgot. Yeah, no, I love that. Just this idea of how do we use some of this functionality to take things that are quite difficult, but are typically a feature already built for the yes. brand that you're interacting with and make it easier to find the feature or the thing that you need very quickly as almost a form of personalization where now it's yeah. easier than ever to just say, I'm here for this. And then you get back this. Yes. So, and I'll add one more thing too, as I say, just being able to identify what happens and provide something back is only part of the challenge. We've seen this before. Generative AI solves some problems and creates some opportunities, but it does not overcome a system that does not allow backend integration into your services that actually fulfill the request. And so this is where, when we talked about the chat bots, you know, like intercom in the lower right-hand corner or something like that, drift, right? 
they weren't integrated into anything. They're just totally standalone. So people couldn't actually resolve their problem. So you can have a better front end. You can have better understanding. You can deliver people better information if like all they need is an FAQ. But if you actually need to solve a problem that requires them to pull up account data, for example, or allow, you know, get, the, get into a return cycle. So you actually have to understand order management, warehouse management, shipping, availability, all those other types of things. You have to integrate in the back end. And that's, that's been one of the biggest failings of the chatbot era, pre-generative AI. And if you don't fix that for the generative AI era, a fancier, better, broader, more capable front end is not going to solve the yeah. fact that you don't have any back end connectivity. So what you're saying, I mean, we, we use the eat your vegetables phrase often, like the brands that have not um, you know, done the hard work to get, get their systems in order are, are probably going to be falling behind pretty quickly as this, as this continues to, to roll out. It's terrible. I mean, like I, I remember I was working, at, working on Staples at like, this was 20 years ago. So staples.com, they were, they were worried about like all the, com- the online competitors and all these you know, types of things, right? For office supplies, right? Like pretty mundane, you know, commodity purchase generally, right? So one of the things we had to figure out was available to promise, capable to promise, right? So if you don't know that from a supply chain standpoint, that's just like, you have a product, can you actually commit to delivering it? And over the last 20 years, companies have actually gotten better at that. Like, is this available? Can I reserve it? Because a lot of times they would be like, they would sell it to you. They had it on a shelf somewhere, but they couldn't actually deliver it to you because they didn't have whatever it was in order to be able to deliver it to you. So we've gotten better at some of those things, particularly around e-commerce, commodity product sales. But there's so many more things that people need to do, whether you talk about returns or, of course, canceling subscriptions like no one's ever going to make that easy. It's like the incentives <laughs> are misaligned to help, to help a, someone who's going to be a former customer. But um, the other things they should all do, and they should do that too, but uh, because they might get them back at some point. So in terms of like getting the house in order, we're talking about integration and um, what, what about data? So what, what kind of customer data should be fed into to the systems that, that organizations are developing oh, to maximize the system, it? Almost none. Um, so data strategy, data readiness. I know you guys know a lot about this because you have a lot of depth in the, the data pipeline right. development, uh, data efficiency. You, you should differentiate between what the generative AI solution is going to do and what you need to do to fulfill a workflow. Those don't have to be integrated. And so one of the things that you're going to need to think about uh, is governance and policy associated with these. If you're using some sort of generative AI system and, for example, a customer enters data that would be associated with their account or maybe PII or something like that, you probably need to scrub that uh, before it goes anywhere. Now, there are some other things around the different models about who owns them. Is it your own? Is it a third party? Are they using that for training data? All these other things. I can talk to you about misadventures and AI or AI fails along those lines. But you don't have to actually put those two things together. So for example, there might be something specific to account information. You might go and get you might figure out with the large language model what they need. You might provide some, some information. And then you might insert, like slot filling, as people in the conversational AI would know, the information into that template that generative AI is, is provided to you in there so that they can actually complete what they want. I um, made a knowing face when you talked about governance because I think that's one thing businesses are underestimating right now. 
uh, we are working with, for instance, a lot of financial services clients where one of the biggest blockers they're going to have to being able to leverage AI is the fact that most modern marketers couldn't tell you whether or not they're allowed to send a message uh, or not allowed to send a message because it actually violates some kind of law around how data is allowed to be used or if their organization has just put up a safeguard because they don't truly understand what the marketer is trying to do or the experience that's trying to be built and the difference between what's allowed and what's legal and how do we detangle those things and make sense of them so that we can understand how to leverage AI to pull off new use cases that we couldn't have done before. That feels like a really major challenge. I'm curious if there are others that are similar where it's like trying to give examples to to growth teams about, hey, here's some of the things to anticipate. Here's some of the things that if you're not working on them now, they might take years of investigation or just exploration or change management to really accomplish. Are there other things that are similar that you're seeing? Okay, so a lot of marketers, but this is true across functional disciplines, are going to be in for a rude awakening in about eight weeks uh, because that's when most of them will go into their annual budgeting cycle. And the beauty of generative AI is not only that it works, but it's actually easy to do a feasibility test. To say, oh, geez, not only works, but it looks like it'd be really good. What's happened, though, is most people skip steps. And why did they skip steps? Well, first of all, if you look at some of the IBM data, 3,000 CEOs, you find that about two-thirds of them say they are getting pressure from their board and investors, lead investors, to implement generative AI. Um, and interestingly enough, even in that same one, about 50% of customers are asking, like CEOs, like, are you implementing generative AI solutions? Okay, so what happens then? CEO also thinks that this might be a source of competitive advantage, plus they're getting pressure. They're saying, hey, implement something. It's like a blank check, right? <laughs> Marketing people, you're going to deliver productivity and you're going to solve all this pressure I'm getting from these outside groups. Okay, great. So they are like, super, let's just try this. And they needed to do a little bit of that because you can't really learn the space very well unless you've tried it a little bit. Okay, so they tried it. And they think, hey, we've got all these numbers, like it looks good, perfect. They're going to show up in six or eight weeks. And uh, someone in the budgeting cycle, uh, whether it be finance or risk, is going to say, oh, why did you select that technology? Like, tell me, like, did you only try that? Did you try three or four others? Like, what's better? Okay, tell me the cost consideration between alternatives. Uh, risk is going to say, you know, what are, the, what are you doing from a data security standpoint? Okay, uh, should we do this on-prem or you're, you're proposing to do this in the cloud because that's like fast? Um, is that, does that make sense? Or does that make sense for all of our solutions? So we think about governance, security. Uh, we think about uh, technology selection. These are all shortcuts that people have sort of ignored to this point. I'm just starting to see conversations about governance. I had a, uh, on, my, on the VoiceBot podcast, podcast I've run for several years now, I had an expert in AI policy. On. And he's got really interesting background because he worked in the corporate sector from 2015 to around 2020. And then since then, he's mostly been advising governments. So he's seen the government policy and regulation side, and he's seen the corporate side around AI policy. And you could just have a brief conversation with him. I talked to him for over an hour, but, and you can see how unsophisticated the viewpoints are of the enterprises who are looking at this compared to what he's saying is this, this, and this. And I'll give you one more practical consideration. I was talking to a very senior executive and contact center for a financial services company just about a week ago about this. And he said, well, I think I can just apply my data governance policy to generative AI. 
And I said, I'm not sure that's for, I'm not sure that's going to cover you. It's not it's not a bad place to start because data is like a very important element. But I think it's a Venn diagram. I said, so think about this. If you just apply that, and let's say you have some something about sharing data externally, you have to do everything on prem. Okay. So what's going to happen when someone says, oh, I need to use this third party. And the only way to use them is to actually to have some data in transit. Like not, not talking about like what data, but just like some data. And so what's going to happen to CIO, CTO, whoever's on that council is every week they're going to be sitting through arguments around exceptions to the policy because we need to actually create new policies in this space. And so I think it's not just an issue that the people who are implementing the solutions, the champions of these new capabilities are going to run into the buzzsaw of the corporation, which is not about solving your problem or implementing gender of AI, but they're about reducing risk. But they're also going to be running up against these ideas of like, what's an appropriate way for us to operate going forward. And so, yeah, governance in this space, policy, security is going to be a big issue and it's going to be a big issue for several years. It's just going to start in earnest in a couple months. Well, what would you say to, because as you're talking, not, not to shift topics too much, but at one of the, as you're talking about the demand and the, um, the boards demanding this, um, which I totally believe, I've had some of the opposite experiences when talking to fairly senior uh, leaders at decent-sized brands, big, big brands, when bringing up the topic of AI and being met with, a lot of fear based reactions yes. and, and those might be like, well, we're in the people business. We'll never use AI, you know, like uh, big violent kind of uh, statements like we'll never use AI as a, as a statement um, or, you know, we're, we're just watching, but we have a lot of fears about the privacy concerns. And, and, and so the, the stance of fear, what would you say to, cause I, I've, I've struggled to respond to some of those. And so uh, selfishly, like, Give me some advice. So how would you how would you respond to those types of uh, objections? Well, so first I would just like the anxiousness resonates with me. And I yeah. understand this because I've actually worked in new technologies for three decades and some really significant ones. There's a lot of people at your company that know about the anxiousness that accompanied the shift to mobile. So I understand that completely. Yeah. And I understand this idea that we don't have a frame of reference. We don't have a framework for understanding what this means that Machines can generate content for us. Machines can do things without us being involved. Or even that we have these like amazing co-pilots who can sort of help people along. It's just like we just don't have that because we haven't done it before. So the first thing I would say is people need to develop some sort of frame of reference. And the easiest way to do this is actually just look at people who have gotten, gone out in front, some of whom have had failures and some of whom have not. But there's a, there was a comment made a week ago. I was in London presenting to a conference, and they were talking about generative AI will it take to jobs away from people? And the comment was, actually, if you look at it, it's, it's probably not going to take your job, but someone using generative AI is going to take your job, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to be able to compete. And I think this is the same thing yeah. because what we're talking about is a productivity and velocity revolution first. Now, quality and uh, personalization and stuff like that will come. But right now, this idea of product and productivity and velocity are very important. Yeah. And I don't think anybody can leave behind right now the opportunity to do that because like we saw like a retrenchment over the last year of big companies concerned about the economy, making sure they can keep profit margins up and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. How many of them actually aggressively reduced their revenue targets? 
they're basically because like we're in an era where you can't tell people like things are bad it's just like insane <laughs> um you know it's like it's very hard to do like a retrenchment like a proper retrenchment like we used to like people used to be more sensible they used to be able to say when they were wrong they used to be able to say hey things don't look mm -hmm. that great and this is what we're going to do but everybody's like so short-termism they don't want to get caught holding the bag right okay so in any event that's like a general societal issue right now so they didn't reduce, many of them didn't reduce what their revenue targets were. And they're saying, oh, well, I'm just going to cut heads and I'm going to do more. Well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> we've, we've, we're emerging from 20 years of productivity growth at about 1.5%. Generative AI showed up just in time um, to sort of help, this, help us out of this quagmire. One of the things that I think is being under-discussed is what will the impact of monetization be in a sort of chat GPT AI-driven world? We're not seeing that yet. Of course, ChatGPT is a free tool. The recommendations coming out of it have some sort of algorithm that allows content to be prioritized in an order that makes sense that seems to be based in sort of popularity of appearance on the internet. But at some point, we will hit a place where either big grocery stores, the Walmarts of the world using AI will monetize which products they show you, or ChatGPT will determine what kinds of holiday recommendations you get based on who is paying for what, and there will have to be that transparency. How far off do you think we are to that? Is that something that feels exciting? Does it feel existential? It's like right around the corner. It's like, uh, in, in fact, it'll most of the implementations will have what we call hybrid systems or, you know, some people will call them neurosymbolic systems, although that term gets misused even by people like Gartner, but I don't think understand what that actual term means. But the idea here is you have something that's a control mechanism where you can identify and determine what's prioritized. Um, and then you have something else, which is a generation mechanism, which is supposed to optimize the response. And so there's different architectures you can implement in terms of which comes first. I just wrote this week about sort of Alexa GPT and Google Assistant GPT type of ideas that like they're going to get generative AI features. And one of the things that they have had to date is they've had some sort of prioritization filters that would, based on the thing you ask, it could just go anywhere just based on what it thinks the right answer is, or there are things that we consider maybe reserved topics. And those would be, if this comes up, it has to go here. Like this service has to respond, or this has to be the response. In some ways, it's the same way guardrails work, right? But this is more, I'm thinking of it more for things that you're not trying to prevent, but things that you want to promote. And so that's what we're going to see a lot more is we're going to see these, what we would consider to be arbitrators. And this is the step before orchestration. It's like, it's arbitrating saying, I've got an intent that I could fulfill. And there's multiple ways I could fulfill that. There's like services, multiple data sources I could go to. Which one gets this? And so there's going to be some which are generic to the, um, to the topic. And it's just going to be like, it's going to probabilistically, it's going to say, this is the best potential answer. Then there's going to be some others, which might be related to merchandising, for example, or promotions, which are then going to just be, they're going to get the prime primary position. And it might be that you get two layers of responses. And we see this all the time. Like you do a search on a website and it'll be like, just like Amazon, for example, all the promoted stuff shows up first, right? And then everything else. So the everything else is what it should be showing you because that's the thing that best matches what you're asking for. The promoted is what they want to show you. And so absolutely, that's the way it's going to work. We already have systems in place that do this. It's just they're going to have to be more careful about how they implement it in this type of scenario. We've talked a lot about 
what will happen in AI, but we've talked about these big concepts that are going to be scarier for any marketer on the ground. Uh, any marketer on the ground, any single person in an organization is going to have a really hard time thinking about how to tackle issues of governance in their organization or what the future of their paid media strategy looks like in an AI-influenced world. If you are just one marketer working in an organization today, what are some of the recommendations you have about where they should start? What are some of the use cases that are more reasonable and within the grasp of marketing teams themselves to start to anchor to and like leverage these technologies? The number one thing I tell people is marketers actually have to do a lot of research. Use generative AI search engines, Perplexity, Bing Chat, whatever you, I think those are the two best right now. Whatever you think works best for you to save time researching information, finding out more about the information that already exists out there. Those are both real-time connected to the internet they provide nice sourcing. They actually have low hallucination rates. So that's like the first thing I would do. I would say that I easily save an hour a day using those tools. It was so Perplexity and Bing Chat? Yes. I think those are the two best right now. But you know, Google SGE, BARD is okay. It's just like hallucinates too much at the moment. Um, I think BARD will eventually be very good. Although I also would predict that that's going to be rolled into Google Assistant before long. So, But I'd say that's like just at the research side. The next thing I would say is use these tools for summarization. They are excellent at summarization. And one of the things that, like a lot of times we do, is we, uh, as marketers, we either do like the one-line copywriting, it's like perfect, or we do something that's like entirely too long and not structured, right? So you can use the summarization features to digest things a little bit better. And so when you think about taking a product manual, QA docs, or something like that, you can actually just create summarization tools, whether you're using Anthropic, which you could put your whole product manual in because it'll take 75,000 words and you can still maintain context around, but do that just for yourself so that you can be more productive and actually consuming information, getting the right information in place. And then you can use them also to, to help you with the writing, just like or Grammarly or like all the other tools, WordTune are, are helping you generate new things, refine what you're writing and apply maybe a consistent brand tone across all your things. So that's on the creation side. And then the next thing I would really focus on is on the consumption side. And you're creating content that is designed to be to show up in these generative AI search results. Because you already know what you're doing, you already have your SEO for the 10 blue link model. What we're seeing is very different type of responses often from the generative search engines, you just want to be one of the links, one of the ideas that's captured in there. And by the way, generative AI search actually rewards long tail more than most things because it'll actually give you some long tail results inside of a high volume type of question because it'll give you, it'll answer your high volume question just like you would uh, in terms of dominating like keywords, but it'll also say very often it'll give you additional context and you might want to consider these things which then are, it's promoting long tail things. So I think people who have richer content, better structured content uh, for long tail answers are actually going to continue to do better. And they're going to see an uplift, not just from the long tail searches, but also from the more general searches that then have responses include long tail elements. I have a bonus question now that I think is cool. So I'm going to ask it, but then you have to save time for one more that I promise will take one minute. Um, so, Two and three years ago, I was telling a lot of brands as part of consulting projects 
that when they were purchasing what I would call cornerstone data management systems, a customer data platform, a CRM, some kind of channel messaging platform or engagement platform, and they were doing evaluations of different vendors, one of the things I would tell them is, please do not get distracted by vendors who tell you they've got AI or that they've got predictive features built in because the advent of AI in the next few years is going to be so good that you are not going to want to be beholden to a company that is supposed to be your customer data platform with a little AI built on when tools that are built to solve AI problems that could plug into that come along, like you're going to want to be flexible and nimble. You think that's still the case in the right advice? Yeah, flexibility probably should be a premium selection criteria right now or priority, priority selection criteria. Because when you go through these really significant transitions, you don't know who's going to win, what's going to win, and you don't want to really be stuck with a lot of vendor lock-in, which means that maybe some of these platforms you should wait, uh, maybe just sort of continue on, uh, take some best-of-breed things, like layer them on either through process or through integration for now until this becomes commodity and everybody has the same features and things like that, which will happen. And it'll happen faster than the most... Same as you probably like over the next five years, everyone's going to have really good capabilities, maybe three. But yeah, I, I think you're right that there is more risk. And I believe that there is, there are, there is a viewpoint that like an LLM is really just a, in, in general, in general, it's just like another API. And I don't think that's true uh, because with all these things, you actually do training. They're supposed to get better over time. And uh, you establish policies and processes around that. You establish customer expectations and swapping them out leads to new types of regression um, and performance that are hard to anticipate because like the people who create the models don't know either. So I think be very careful about what you choose. Understand that you probably will have to change, but really focus on flexibility sometimes to the, you know, maybe flexibility might even be more important than initial performance because initial performance is going to change over time. But like, if you don't have flexibility, you're going to have to go through a very painful change as opposed to, you know, something that might be a little easier. Right. And then Brett, the entire point of this podcast (laughs) is that we want to help marketers, product owners build experiences that are so good that people are loyal to them and continuously use them. So my question for you is what brands are you truly loyal to and why? What brands am I loyal to? Um, I really like Oakley sunglasses. I actually met the founder of Oakley when I was in business school. He actually presented as like, I was in the front row. He was like present and he saw my things right there. And he said, you know, like you could withstand a shotgun blast with those. And I was like, well, yeah, the rest of my head would be gone, but at least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but I think like, you know, that's been a real focus on quality. I would say I'm mostly loyal to Apple just because integration of all the different tools are really exceptional in the running nutrition space. Like noon tablets are just amazing for electrolyte replacement and like actually work with my stomach. Um, you know, right now I like Prana shorts are just amazing. Uh, cause yeah. they're kind of like, they look like they're like nice, but they're like technical. I don't know. So there's, I, I'm really into brands. I love the Red Bull brand, but I don't drink Red Bull. But I like the racing team because I did work for them years ago when I was in the social media space. They were a client of mine. So, yeah, I love brands just in general. I think it's my Yeah. There's a couple new ones that we hadn't haven't heard over. Uh, Of course, we've we've definitely heard Apple, but uh, uh, Oakley, that's a that's a a good brand. Cell gel. That stuff. Like if you want, it has protein plus 
carbohydrates in it. So if you're doing like long workouts, you get that protein replacement for the really long ones actually becomes really important. I'm not doing any long um, workouts. Again, so I don't works need with my stomach. <laughs> you lost me at long workouts, yeah. uh, Brett. So that's where we're, that's where we're going to have to just close, but, uh, no, appreciate all the insights. I, th- I feel like we could probably go another, another hour and, um, as fast as this space is moving, maybe we'll have to, to bring you back on to, uh, to, to do an update. So we really appreciate your time and sharing uh, all your knowledge in the space with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Billy and Billy. Great stuff here. Hi, Brett. Um, because we didn't let Brett at the end, we talked to Brett for so long that we didn't even ask him to give a plug for himself on where you can find him. So you can find Brett on his website. We will link it in the show notes. Uh, I know that we are very email centric. So hearing Billy and I say sign up for emails, they're great. Either means one of two things to you. Maybe we're bullshitting you or maybe because we're endorsing it and you know we know our email space, you are listening. His emails, if you want to just get casual news to your inbox, casual learning tidbits and content that is really helpful for keeping yourself informed about what's happening, what's changing in AI, how to leverage technologies that are just coming to market, how to think about how to shift your strategy. Excellent newsletter. It's one that I read daily. So definitely sign up for that and we'll make sure it's linked here.